Back in the uh, 1990s, um, our family, we were living back in Pennsylvania at the time, and our family had the opportunity to travel to the Brooklyn Tabernacle in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, several different times. Uh, some of you are going to be familiar with the name, and maybe some of you aren't, but um, it's a church that, especially in the 90s, but even beyond that, was well-known nationally. The pastor was and continues to be Jim Cimbala, a nationally known Bible teacher, but also a man that was known as a pastor to pastors at various pastor conferences as well. They also were the home of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, a multi-Grammy winning choir um, that you could hear on any Christian radio station, again, especially back in that time. And it was interesting because they um, had uh, been a historic church. They actually traced their roots all the way back into the 1850s or 1860s. But when Jim and Carol Cimbala arrived in, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s, it was a church of 40 people. And it was a church that rather than doing a lot of changes, Jim uh, Cimbala felt led of the Lord. He said, just come together and pray. And so at midweek, as many of the 40 people as they could, we got together to pray. 20 years later, as Denise and I and the kids were going, it was a church of about 8,000. They had uh, purchased a theater uh, there in Brooklyn, and they had converted that into their sanctuary, seated 1,500 people, and they had five absolutely packed out worship services every Sunday, and the last of which was at 6 p.m., in the evening. And so one Sunday as we were there, our family was at church early that afternoon so that we could be there for the 6 p.m. service. And we were seated right at the, the front row of the balcony where we had this great view down across the sanctuary. And we looked over to our right, and right down in the front was this big section of seats that had been roped off. And we were wondering, well, I wonder what that's for, or who that's been roped off for. Well, just a few minutes before the start of the service, the sanctuary is filling up. It's almost full. In come uh, six or seven ushers, and they're leading between 100 and 150 homeless people into the sanctuary. They brought them up. They took the ropes away, and they were seated right down there in the front. We were talking uh, with someone afterwards about this, and they said, yeah, we, uh, we have this every week. We go out and we invite people that are living on the street to come in for a hot meal. And so we feed them and then we bring them in and we have this same section of seats roped off for them every week. And we have seen a number of them give their life to Christ as we've been doing this. The man explained that they were led to start this ministry to street people by the very passage that we've read this morning and here in James chapter 2. That they had made a decision as they were looking at this passage of Scripture that they wanted to take these forgotten and mostly unseen men and women who were living on the streets and give them the opportunity to experience the love of Jesus Christ through the people of Jesus Christ. They wanted them to know that in Christ, they were accepted, they were respected, and they were loved. You know, James would have, I think, looked at that and said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about 
in this passage of Scripture. It's having that kind of heart for the people that our society say have less value, but that God says have equal value with any other person. You know, the church is meant to be a reflection of heaven. It's not meant to be a reflection of the earth or the way and relationships here on earth. When we get to heaven, there's going to be people of every race, every nationality, every economic bracket, every status here on this earth, every language, and we are going to exist together as one body of worshiping believers, and we will be in perfect harmony, we will be in perfect unity, because none of that matters. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to reflect that to the world today. As the church of Jesus Christ, you and I are actually brought together and we're connected, not by some kind of social or economic similarities, but we are brought together because we have a common relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, who brings us together and unites us as a family. But it is love that binds us together. It is love that holds us together. It's the love of God that we experience together, but then it's the love of God given to us that we then share with one another. So it's the love of God received, but then it's the love of God shared. And so from the beginning, Jesus Christ has desired and in fact commanded that his church, his body, his group of followers is to be a place where anybody can come and they will be accepted, they will be respected, and they will be loved as they are also encouraged and discipled to follow Jesus Christ. So that they will have an authentic and growing relationship with him. That's why Jesus Christ told his disciples in the upper room in John 13... A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, will not, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you look at that as it's typed out on my page, it's not quite two sentences. <laughs> and yet, in that little short blurb, Jesus Christ tells us three different times, love one another. Later, Paul gives some detail of what this looks like. What, what does this love for one another look like as we actually gather and are a church family together? He says, therefore, as, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against anyone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. In the book, uh, I mean, in the four Gospels in the book of Acts, we see this desire and command of Jesus for this loving unity amongst his followers. But we also see this reality. The reality is our human nature creates challenges to living that out. Our human nature presents some challenges. 
if we are going to have this kind of unity and love relationship together. It's not always easy, and it certainly is not always smooth as we try to actually get along together and live together as a church family. You see that start right as Jesus is choosing the 12 apostles, an incredibly diverse group of men. I, I do. I smile every time I think about the day that Jesus is walking along with the first group of disciples, which included the fishermen, Peter and Andrew and John and James. And they're going by the booth of Matthew, the tax collector, a man that they despised and hated their whole lives. And Jesus looks up, goes like this to Matthew and says, follow me. <laughs> they had, no! I mean, you know, it's, it's this example that Jesus is setting that, hey, my group of believers are going to be something that the world's not seen. And so Matthew comes in with all those fishermen and they learn how to get together and learn how to get along together. There were some of the disciples that were educated urban men from Judea. There were those that were blue-collar country boys from Galilee, and that was a clash of culture. There was the politically active zealot amongst them who wanted to, by force if necessary, overthrow the Romans. And so he was probably always chirping. These guys struggled sometimes. They were at odds sometimes. They were super competitive against each other. They were always trying to one-up each other as far as who's going to be the closest to Jesus. And yet through all of that, Jesus Christ just patiently and consistently says, you need to be together as one. And you do that by showing my servant's attitude to each other. You get to Acts chapter 2 and you see God do it again. We talked about that in detail on a couple of occasions where on that day that the gospel is preached, you've got Jews of, the, of a Greek background that are in Jerusalem for the festival. You've got Jews of Hebrew background that live in that area and members of both of those two different groups put faith in Jesus Christ and instantaneously they are brought together as one group as the first church of Jerusalem. Historically and culturally, those two groups didn't like each other. They didn't respect each other. And then you come along, and it doesn't take very long that you've got the widows of those of the Greek background and those of the Hebrew background, and those widows depended upon this food ministry that the church developed in order to have meals to eat. It was overseen strictly by Hebrew Jews, and they were accused by the Greek-leaning Jews that their widows, the Hebrew widows, are getting preferential treatment. Could have had a massive split in the church. But they work through it. And at the end of the day, unity is preserved. Then you get to Acts chapter 10, and and you're continuing through chapter 14, and now you've got Gentiles coming into the church as believers, joining the Jewish believers. Now, if there were problems between the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews, that's nothing compared to the animosity between Gentiles and Jews. Historically and culturally, these two groups hated each other. They held each other in contempt. Now they're together in one church. 
They faced a lot of challenges in those early decades of trying to bring these two cultural backgrounds together. And it comes to a head in Acts chapter 15 and it threatens to blow up the church again. But they work through it. And the unity of the church is preserved. I lay all that out as background because that is what's happening in James's letter here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. He's dealing with that same foundational issue within the church. The fact that Jesus Christ desires and is commanded that the church is to be a place where anyone can come and experience acceptance, respect, and love as they are encouraged and discipled to have this authentic and growing relationship with Him. But, our human nature raises up, rises up, and creates these challenges to actually living that out. And that's exactly what's happening in the churches that James is writing to. They're, they're struggling to live this out. They're struggling to know how to love each other. They're struggling to preserve unity. And James is actually going to deal with two or three different issues related to that struggle. And one of them is here in these verses in chapter 2. The issue that they're dealing with here, dealing with here is, just, is this. They are seeing people through the eyes and values of their culture instead of through the eyes and values of God. They're seeing people through the eyes and values of their culture instead of through the eyes and the values of God. In verses 1 through 4, James says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there are some believers that were showing favoritism toward the rich and powerful while displaying at the same time a belittling attitude towards the poor. He talks about this being favoritism. The word there, favoritism, means to judge someone by their appearance. To give somebody special favor or respect over somebody else. It's the idea that you are judging on superficial things rather than taking into consideration the true merits of that person or abilities of that person or their true character. And so he describes a situation in which these two men walk into a home church meeting at the same time. The first guy, we were told, is wearing a gold ring. He's a rich man. The word here literally is gold finger. The idea is that he's not just wearing one gold ring. He's got bling on all fingers. Because the more gold you could wear, the more it showed how wealthy you are. It also says that he has fine clothes, and that means brilliant or bright clothes. The idea is that it's multicolored. In the first century, dye was extremely expensive. Only the rich would have multicolored or brightly colored clothing. And it's not something you could do at home. It had to be done professionally, and so these are tailored clothes as well. 
so only the rich could afford them. And so the point that James is saying is that as soon as this guy walks through the door, you know that he's wealthy and powerful just by his appearance. You don't know anything about him, but you, in, you immediately know that this is a wealthy, powerful man. Right coming in behind him is a poor man. He's described as wearing filthy old clothes. Now, the word filthy means more than dirty. It means that this is an individual that carries with him a distinct and unpleasant odor. You see, the poor in, in the Roman culture had little access to bathing. And they had very little access to anything regarding hygiene care. His clothes are old in the sense that they're well-worn and tattered. Most of the poor only had one set of clothes. Wore them all the time. So they wore out. The point that James is making is that this man's poverty and low status is instantly seen by his appearance. You don't know anything about him, but you know he's poor just by his appearance. And so on the basis of this outward appearance, on the basis of simply how they're dressed, they are treated two very different ways. They come into the worship service to worship the Lord, and the rich man is given a place of honor. Now, I know this is hard to believe, but trust me, it's true. In the first century church, you would be fighting for the front pew. <laughs> because in any gathering, the front was a considered a place of honor. Rather than church, think about a concert at the Kennedy Center or some other place to where there is a special place, the best seat in the house is reserved for somebody of either status or power or influence or office. And that's what was done even in the church meeting, apparently, is that if you had that kind of status, you were given that front row seat. Not so that you could hear or that you could see better, but because we want to recognize your status. The poor man comes in, and he's treated like he's just a servant. They say, stand in the back. Remember we said last week that the um, church service was modeled after the synagogue service, and the people standing in the back of a synagogue were the Gentiles checking out whether they wanted anything to do with this Jewish God or not. In other words, they're observers, but they're not considered part of the congregation. This poor guy is welcome to sit there and watch what's going on, but he's not going to be included into the, what would be considered the congregation. You just stand in the back and watch. And then if you were coming in and you were the servant of a rich man, the rich man would sit down in the chair or at the stool that you carried everywhere because a rich man never sat on the ground. And then you would sit literally at his feet in a position of submission in humility and just wait for the rich man to tell you what you could do, what you needed to do in order to serve him. So James is saying, number one, you're not part of what's going on because you're going to sit in the back. Or if you do sit in here, it's only so that you're here as a servant. You're here as a lower class. What's really happening here is the Roman culture that they lived in was seeping into the church. 
In the Roman culture, society was, developed, was divided into four distinct layers or classes that you were born into. The first was the wealthy government officials. Not the government officials like the governor or like Pilate. These are the government officials like in Rome that are part of the Senate or high-level government positions of the empire. So you had wealth, you had land, and you had power. You had this political position, and you inherited all of that. You inherited the land, you inherited the wealth, and you inherited the position in the government. And you were the highest class. Nobody was more powerful than you than the emperor himself. Be like being born into the royal family in England, but generations ago when you had the power and authority to actually rule. The next one were the people that are wealthy landowners, and they had a lot of wealth, but they didn't have the political position. But again, the wealth and the lands... They inherited them. The next were the working poor. The working poor are the people that worked for the wealthy. They didn't have the funds or the ability to own anything, and so they rented from the wealthy, and the wealthy absolutely took advantage of them. They ripped them off. They treated them poorly. And if they had a thing against you, they'd take you to court and get you thrown in the prison. And then at the bottom were the slaves. They were actually owned by the wealthy. Sometimes they made the decision themselves because they couldn't afford to live life, so they sold themselves into slavery, so at least their basic needs would be taken care of. Or you were born into slavery. Most slaves in the empire, we would have considered household servants. They actually had positions and jobs. They really weren't, don't think of slavery in our history, but this was a different form of slavery. It was almost employment in a way, but there were also those that were born into slavery and were put into positions of hard labor and forced labor. There was no middle class. There was no group of people who could work and accumulate money in order to acquire land or possessions. You were wealthy or you were poor. 8% of the people of the Roman Empire had wealth. The other 92% were either working poor or slaves. Most, but not all, Christians were working poor or slaves. As we see from here, there were some wealthy people who had put faith in Jesus Christ as well. There were strict rules by which people lived and interacted as a culture in the community. And this is where we get into the story here that James is telling The lower classes were always expected to defer to the upper classes. And the upper classes always received preferential treatment. If I were sitting someplace and I was one of the lower classes and a wealthy man came in, I was expected to get up and let him have my seat. And not only that, I was expected to take several steps back because I am not worthy to stand next to this man of wealth. The wealthy classes were considered superior in every way to the working poor and the slaves. They looked down on the lower classes with an arrogance and a conceit. And so the thing that's happening here is the church is beginning to treat the poor with the same disregard as the culture around them. That's the issue. 
It's not just that they were respecting this man's wealth. They were copying the culture and showing the same disregard for these poor that they were receiving in the culture and everywhere else that they went. And James makes it clear, not only is this wrong, but this is sinful. In verse 4, he says, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is a form of discrimination. It's wronging them. It is a form of judgmentalism, and Jesus Christ was very clear in what he thought about being judgmental of others. And it's evil. It's sinful. And it's because showing favoritism on this kind of basis does not reflect the character and behavior of God. It's not who God is. James goes on in verse 5 and says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You know, Peter says as he's talking to Cornelius and the other Gentiles and he's giving them the gospel for the first time, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right. Jesus was known for spending time with people that the religious snobs of his day looked down on. We're told in Matthew chapter 9 that as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." The important thing here is Jesus Christ is not saying there are righteous and sinners. He's thrown that back in the face of the Pharisees because that's what they said. We're righteous, they're sinners, and therefore we're better than them. The point Jesus is making is, you both need my forgiveness. You're equal. Your self-righteousness will not save you. And so Jesus was known for hanging around the people that, nobody, that the rest of Jewish society thought were lower class, less thans, less important, less accepted. And so James points out here that God looks at the people that are poor, these people that are considered less than, and he says in verse 5, he's chosen them to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. In the sight of God, there is no class. In the sight of God, we're all equal before him. We all need the same grace. We all receive the same grace. And we all receive the same inheritance in Christ when we believe. 
And then the rest of those verses that we read, God simply says, so don't bring this sinful behavior into my church. So we're like, this, it's a moment where James is saying, what are you thinking? You know the way the rich, poor, the rich treat the poor in the society around you. You know how they rip them off. You know how they look down on them. You know they take them in the court and have them thrown in the jail so they can take away what little possessions they do have. So why are you bringing that into my church? Don't do it. You know, showing favoritism is just one of the cultural attitudes and practices in our 21st century American culture that we need to be aware of. Oh, we certainly stratify our country by economic status. No no doubt about it. But there is, in this day and age, a harshness and a judgmentalism that does not reflect Jesus. A place to where we cannot just disagree with each other, but we have to demonize each other and question each other's character and heart. On the other side is we need to get along at any cost, and so there is a compromising and accommodating, and they're both wrong. There's a self-promoting celebrity-driven element in our culture that can become part of the church as well. There can be those that will seek comfort and personal satisfaction in life over serving God and others. And there's other ways where we can stop and go, okay, we may or may not have this favoritism based on wealth thing going on, but, oh, there's so many cultural elements that will seep into the church if we're not careful. We need to be filtering all these things through a biblical filter so that we're living by God's word and seeing life with his values and perspective. And not allow the perspective, values, and practices of the culture to seep into the church. And then as we close, he gives us one primary adjustment to make. And it's found in verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing right. Pretty simple. Live by the royal law, and you do well. James is referring to two key teachings of Jesus. The first is the one that we know is the great commandment. So we're hearing that Jesus had silenced, in Matthew 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then Jesus added a layer in John 13 in that verse we've already read. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. He ups the ante. Not only love the way you want to be loved, but now love the way that I have loved you. And James's point is that one of the ways that you and I obey and live by the great commandment is to accept, respect, and love the people that God brings into his church. That on any given Sunday, people are received with acceptance and respect and love so that they can join us 
in having an authentic, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a command, it's not an option. It's referred to as the royal law. The royal law in, that, in, in Roman culture was a commander law that had been given by the king or the emperor himself. And so therefore, there was no option regarding this, and there was no court of appeal because the command had come directly from the king or the emperor himself. James is reminding us that this command has come from the lips of Jesus himself. It's a royal command. It's not meant to be an option. It's meant to be obeyed. And God will continue to lead people and draw people through the doors of Grace Bible Church, just like he has for the last 65 years. And each one of us have been given the responsibility to make them feel welcome. To help them know that they're accepted and respected and to love them. As we then encourage them to be in this authentic and growing relationship with Jesus. And then we do it together. For them to have a totally different experience here in all the best ways than an experience they'll have anywhere else in this culture. Throughout its history, the church has been used by God, believers have been used by God to be channels of his love and grace and draw people to Christ. And Grace Bible Church has been a part of God doing that. You've got your own stories. Denise and I have heard them of how this church is ministered to you, how the people of this church are special to you, and how God has used this church in your life and has used some of you in the lives of other people. And we loved hearing those stories. And God's got more stories to write, more people to bring, more lives to change. Denise and I have been witnesses of what God can do in the life of a person over the, over the years of our ministry as well. We had a young lady by the name of Kim Evans who came into our first ministry, our youth ministry in Lancaster. She was, I believe, at the end of her eighth grade or maybe ninth grade year. She had no church background. She was there because she was brought by a friend. Um, she was quiet. She was reserved. She, it took a long time to get Kim out of her shell. That happened during the school year. That summer, we had a camp where we brought our kids together with church, with five or six other churches and did a week of camp of junior, senior high. And on the next to last night of that camp, I had the opportunity. I sat at a picnic table outside of the, of the um, cafeteria, and I'll never forget what Kim said. She said, all the things that you've told me, us, about Jesus and your teaching and the way this youth group has loved me, I want a relationship with Jesus. And she accepted Christ. A few years later, Kim, along with 11 other teenagers, joined Denise and I and a couple of other leaders to the island of Barbados in the Caribbean on our first overseas missions trip in our ministry there. And we had the opportunity to give testimony in in schools. It was really pretty cool. And that's when I learned that when Kim came to our youth group, 
she had started to put in her diary a plan to commit suicide. And one of the reasons she didn't follow through is because she met the kids of that youth group. That's God using his church. Years later, there was a family by the name of the Trudells in New Jersey having marital problems, and it's too long of a story, but through the children's ministry over the course of a few months, mom, dad, and both kids were followers of Jesus sitting in the pew in church. We left less than a year later, but I already watched as God began to bring healing to their marriage, and I had a chance to be with the husband about five years later at a men's retreat that I was doing. And he said, man, we're doing well. He was serving on a leadership board. His wife was involved in women's ministry, and he said, we love our church. That's how God can use us. We've got the stories of God doing that in the past. There are more stories to be written. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is accepted. Everyone's respected for who God has made them to be. Everyone is loved with the love of Jesus. And then encouraged to know and follow and grow in the Lord together with us. And you just look at what God will do. Amen? And let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have received us. You've accepted us. You have redeemed us through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, you've brought us together into this wonderful body called the church in this particular expression of that called Grace Bible Church. Thank you for all you've done in the lives of people that have sat in these pews over the decades. Thank you for the work that you are continuing to do in our midst right now. And we look forward to all that you will do, Father, in the years ahead. May we take and live by the royal law. To love you passionately and completely. And to love each other as Jesus has loved us. Thank you in his name. Amen.